0: And I want to say that uh, I uh, start uh, giving a very brief 30 seconds introduction to wh- how this all started. I have been working on middle classes since I was in New York in UNDP, but then when I came to the bank, Chico Ferreira, uh, who many of you uh, know, and he's one of the brightest minds, definitely, in the institution where I work, was leading a project on mobility and middle classes. And then, uh, so it was a very nice coincidence, so I started uh, collaborating on the, in that flagship, and I also want to say that in different aspects of, you know, the definition, the values, and so on, this is work that has been done with many colleagues. You know, Eduardo Ortiz, um, Guillermo Cruces, Jamel Rigolini, um, uh, Florencia Torche. So it's really a collective endeavor. Uh, so what I w- will, show, will, try, will show is how uh, we, we uh, def- uh, what we were looking for when we um, proposed this, this definition and how uh, we also see some of the challenges uh, on the way forward. Given that I save this as a PDF, I cannot use the automatic uh, changer so let me so one of the issues is we started from this um, uh, in, in a moment in which there was a lot of discussion about you know the world is becoming middle class, and we thought that there was a little bit of an exaggeration in that sense, so there was a little bit of you know exaggeration on the side on the from the perspective of the analysts but also definitely there was also this uh, rising aspirational issue as that was already mentioned. In the case, for example, of Brazil, recently um, Romulo Pais, who used to be in, in MDS in Brazil, said, you know, Brazilians in the last years have been buying things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't know, <laughs> which, I, which I think is a very interesting uh, way to, to summarize uh, this issue. So we wanted to see what is really happening with a definition that You know, we see these type of articles in economies that are a little bit of an exaggeration, like saying, you know, now the world is becoming middle class, when the conditions didn't seem to be really those of what you would traditionally think of of being middle class. And also, we we have the case, there was a very important book uh, in Mexico that was uh, cited by the government saying, you know, we're a middle class society. Then the crisis hit and 9 million people went back into poverty, so... So uh, these issues uh, uh, were, uh, are the type of, of issues that we believe our definition try to, uh, tries to, to deal with uh, to have a more consistent and, and robust measure of middle class. So let me not, not go into a lot of, of history, but I just want to mention that we are very well aware that the concept of, the concept of class is a, is a complex co- uh, concept, So what we want to to do, and this is the first thing uh, that we want to emphasize in terms of the measure, is that we want to isolate the the economic dimension. So in the Bavarian tradition, which is, I think, the dominant tradition, there are these three elements, which are uh, sort of the economic element, which is life chances, the class component. Then there is the issue related to status and identity and the issue related to power, which in the sociological sense is the capacity to make others act in your interest. All that is involved in the definition of class, so that is why we are very careful to always talk about economic mobility. So this is uh, an important thing. And then once we define this and we define the trends and so on, we try to move into, uh, you know, to look into how this element of the concept of class correlates with others. But but we try to isolate this particular element, which is the the economic element. The second uh, uh, aspect of this measure is that it's in the the realm of the absolute measures, because there are also and we have also worked on on relative measures. But that's a different uh, type of analysis that uh, uh, we are not discussing uh, necessarily here. So there are many ways in which uh, you know people in the literature have looked into relative measures but we are more in the realm of, of the absolute measures, and the best-known papers are the ones uh, cited there. Uh, the one, for example, I, I, uh, we, we had these conversations with our colleague at the bank, Martin Ravallion, who had these thresholds of 2 to 13, basically by saying those who are not poor anymore in developing countries but are uh, uh, still poor in... Uh, in a, in a rich country that would be considered middle class in the, uh, as a global concept. And we will show that some of the trends using these thresholds didn't make sense to us when, when we actually applied them to Latin America. So basically, uh, I want to stress the, the characteristics of the definition that we propose, not by saying this is the definition of middle class, but by saying this is a definition, one definition of middle class that serves the purpose that we're trying, we were trying to uh, uh, to pursue, which is basically, I mean, uh, basically trying to have a measure that isolates the economic dimension first. Second, looks into the directional aspect of mobility, which is very important. I will show you some examples of why this is important. Second, that has links to policy that, that can be uh, uh, relevant. And then uh, that as a concept is just equivalent or analogous to what we do in poverty, we want a concept that is, uh, can be applied in any context, even when the actual implementation of the concept may differ. So you can talk about, you know, you can debate about the probabilities of falling into poverty, what are the thresholds in terms of income, depending on the context. But the concept behind it is this idea of economic security, which is consistent throughout. So that is, uh, those are the elements that we believe our uh, measure suggests. This is important because I feel bad because you're not know, talking about uh, Goldthorpe here in Oxford, but uh, so the, the traditional uh, way in which uh, uh, certification has been analyzed is through occupational status. So what we did is took uh, this categorization, the, the Goldthorpe, categori- Goldthorpe uh, categories, in, in the case of Chile and other countries, this is, this is Chile, And we looked at the income distribution within these categories. And as you can see, there is a huge overlap. So if we wanted to have a measure that has some directional mobility in terms of welfare, so we want to say being in this position is actually moving up versus moving down, in terms of welfare, this measure was not uh, uh, useful for us because there's a huge overlap, so you can be, actually, Guillermo mentioned something about this. You can be in a specific category that for this categorization would be higher class, whereas you, are actually, you could have income that is actually lower than being in a category that would be considered lower class. So that is why uh, we, we didn't go, uh, uh, um, I mean, we didn't use this type of analysis. Okay, so that is more of sort of uh, the the background. Now, what exactly we do to to estimate um, these these thresholds? So conceptually, we use this idea of economic security, and uh, or or would be what what is the opposite, which is vulnerability to poverty. So we want we want to to, uh, to measure is, uh, and, and Guillermo, I, I think explained this very well. The idea is you know all many of the behavioral aspects of being middle class that we Typically have in mind and the literature mentions and so on tend to be related with this idea of feeling economically secure. Uh, One interesting, I was looking at the previous uh, presentation, uh, a very good presentation, uh, and I was thinking that now that I am working more in I am working in Russia and Eastern Europe, I can see how it's interesting how in Latin America we start from a very different point and we move into relatively people tend to feel that they aspire to be middle class, whereas in Europe, you you see objectively how people have improved their conditions, and yet they self-declare as uh, having lower mobility, Uh, and actually they self-declare as being more insecure than they used to be. So this is a very interesting uh, interesting, uh, contrast. So basically, if you are less vulnerable to fall into poverty, you will be considered middle class. How will we operationalize this, I'm going to summarize it in, in three steps. So the first, um, oh, this is just one slide that I think is all, all intuitively um, inter, uh, useful. Think of this, uh, uh, um, suppose you have um, a poverty line that is defined in, in terms of nutritional status. But suppose that you can also define the cost of an insurance uh, um, uh, package that would make you less vulnerable to fall back into poverty. So suppose that there would there would be well-developed markets, and you can have you know you can classify risks that you face, and you you can price how much it would cost you know to be insured against those risks, and that would be sort of a basic package of insurance. And that would be on top of the nutritional aspect of, of poverty. If you add these two up, then you would get to a higher line, which would be the line that not only makes you nutritionally safe, but also less vulnerable to fall back because you are insured. That's a, another way of th- to think about this idea of the, the middle class. So you have a higher line because, in a way, what we are doing is empirically finding a threshold uh, above which people, in any way in which they choose to insure, are relatively better insured than the others, okay? Uh, Because markets, of course, are not necessarily uh, well-developed. So first, we construct uh, uh, transition matrices for three countries for which we have panel data, Chile, Peru, and Mexico. Uh, So we, we we look at the actual transition matrices for these countries. Second, we estimate the probability of falling into poverty between periods as a function of uh, uh, certain characteristics of the household. And then using the same characteristics, we estimate the income related to that probability. And finally, we map um, probability versus income. And uh, uh, for these three countries particularly, we find uh, that a 10% probability of falling back into poverty is around the level of $10 per capita uh, PPP, in PPP terms. Um, Two things about it: we need some robustness, and again, we're not. Uh, we use 10% because in a 15-year period, using synthetic panels, in a 15-year uh, period, on average, there are 10% of people who are falling in Latin America who are falling into poverty. Okay, so we take this 10% threshold as sort of the dynamic uh, average of these people falling back, falling into uh, into poverty in a long in a long term. So we take the 10%. Again, what we want to to, uh, defend or propose is the concept, and we can discuss the threshold. I think the threshold has worked very well while having now applying in other countries. We actually recently applied it to Russia, and it works, I mean, surprisingly well. Uh, uh, You know, there are some variations around the $10, but uh, in terms of the... If you fix the 10% probability, it's more or less around uh, the same level of income. That can be discussed. Now, if you look at self, self-declared status, uh, as you said, there are people who, who would self-declare the, themselves as, as being middle class, but not necessarily have, have the income. So it's a, there is a larger variation. Uh, but if we take uh, an average who are more or less around the same uh, $10, and actually we show that in, in the report, and then we look, this is the actual distribution for, for Latin America uh, in 2009. And uh, what we see basically, I mean, here, the main message of the report that we presented is here, which is uh, that the mode of the distribution, first that we have these different groups. We have the poor, the vulnerable, and the middle class, as it has been discussed. And then that the mode of the distribution is not, uh, within the middle class range is actually uh, in the vulnerable uh, range, and then, as Guillermo said, we need much more um, uh, analytical foundation for the for the upper threshold. We basically chose it when, when the distribution becomes very flat, so the sensitivity to moving that threshold is is um, uh, very low, so basically, we chose these fifty uh, dollars at that point, but th- th- this is important in the same way that we see that poor people um, Sometimes declare themselves as being middle class. Um, a former President Piñera in Chile used to say in his speeches that he was part of the middle class. So, <laughs> so there is. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't have any objective except if, except for the Forbes list. I don't have any other objective um, <laughs> indicator to claim that he may be a little bit uh, higher. No. Um, okay. So the, we we need a, a better foundation for that. Most of the literature on on the, the analyzes the rich. Uh, looks into stocks and, and not flows. Um, so that is, you know, it's not so, so obvious how to do it, but, yeah, there is work to do there. So the evolution, if we take the, the traditional um, uh, thresholds or, or the thresholds used in the, in the most famous papers, like, you know, Martins and Vanity and Duflo, we will see that in a very good period for Latin America, the middle class would be actually going down, which was sort of counterintuitive, I and mean, it has to do with the selection of, of these thresholds, whereas if we use our thresholds, it was more intuitive, because it was a good period for, for the region. So that we use that also to show that the other thresholds may have some, some issues. And this is, as you know, the main, the main uh, message. So in around 2009, 2010, depending on, on uh, some adjustments you make to the data, there is sort of a historical turning point in, in the region because the share of people who are uh, uh, middle class it becomes higher than the share of people who are poor, so it, it really uh, it is important in that sense. And it starts, you know, the the gap widens. The only uh, case in which actually this reverse uh, there is a reversal, is in the case of Mexico. But basically, if you if you look at uh, Latin America on on, a, on average, this is the, the 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 pattern, which is a very positive pattern. But, but again, the message in the report is. Even though this is the case and this is very good, Latin America is not yet a middle class society. Latin America is on the, on the way of, to become a middle class society. But we still have this group which are the vulnerable and we look at the characteristics that have, have been mentioned. So this is related to informality. This is related to lack of, of access to certain uh, insurance mechanisms that make them uh, very um, uh, exposed to shocks. There is, of course, a lot of heterogeneity uh, across countries, so what I showed before uh, is an average. But even though there is this uh, heterogeneity, um, the pattern is very uh, um, um, consistent uh, across countries. One important issue is if we make the compositions similar to what we would do for poverty using that and Revalian, uh, methodology, we can, we, we can say that around two-thirds of of this evolution uh, for the Latin American average, around two-thirds of the the positive uh, trend is explained by growth. But also there is one-third, a little bit less than one-third, that is explained by redistribution. So it's not only growth, which is also an important message. Uh, Growth matters a lot, of course, but there is also a role of public policies becoming much more progressive uh, during, during this period. Um, okay. Let me uh, go to this. Some thoughts on uh, um, to 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 finalise on this. So once we show the patterns, these are chapters four, five, and six in the report. We show the um, the you know the evolution, the patterns, the profiles. We say so. What does this imply? As Guillermo mentioned, in terms of values, and so on. So we basically are. We are not very optimistic about this idea of the middle class uh, uh, being really pro-democracy, pro-institutional strengthening, pro-rights uh, of minorities and all this. As, as also Guillermo said, maybe our interpretation may be a bit too uh, extreme. But what we wanted to point out is the following, uh, that there are sort of two scenarios. In, in one scenario, what you have is, yes, the, the middle class is, is strengthened, and then there, are, there is more support for better policies. But there is one in which actually what we call the, 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 the social contract can get fragmented in the, in the following sense. Uh, people start demanding, start opting out of the social contract and start demanding private services. And uh, you know, in the other presentation, you have seen how there has been this discussion on education mainly. But... Uh, it's not only education. We have a, a case study um, in, in Dominican Republic. It's energy as well. I mean, in your house, you have your own generator of energy. Uh, it's security. In, in, um, in Central America, there are three... Uh, uh, the number of private security guards compared to the number of police is actually three times. There are three times more private security guards than police. Uh, so there is a sort of a privatization of many of these services by this opt- opting out of the middle class. And the issue there is that we emphasize the link of that to the fiscal weakness uh, of the state. So the idea is in that case, it, by the way, Brazil is a very different, it's a different case because it's fiscally very strong, and there are other issues there, um, but basically, people start, you know, middle classes start being um, have, having less incentives to contribute fiscally because they are actually paying for the services, you know, uh, uh, privately. Um, so basically, what we have in that in that specific uh, dynamic, those, those specific uh, um, social dynamics, which we sort of raise awareness or try to to raise the concern about this, is that you have a, a trend of fiscal weakness lower quality of services, and the poor basically are left with, with lower quality of services. And the middle class is demanding relatively higher quality services, and there is this segmentation. One important thing is that when we say the middle class mobilizes to demand higher quality of education, which may be the case in, many, in, in, many, in, in some countries, what we see in, in the Chapter 6 is that our analysis of some of these movements is that Uh, the middle class mobilizes to demand free tertiary education. But the middle class doesn't get organized to demand better quality in rural uh, primary schools, okay, because they don't use rural primary schools. So what we say is that the middle class may be very pragmatic um, uh, in in the sense that basically they mobilize for the things that they use, to demand things that they use. So basically, what you have, um, certainly in the case of Mexico, that, that there is more more analysis. But in other cases, it could be the case, it could be also the, the, the situation is that poor people go to low quality primary and secondary schools, and uh, richer people or middle classes go to better quality primary and secondary schools. When you get to tertiary education, the elite public schools have the tests for admission, and most of the you know the the, the the top performers in these tests tend to come from private schools. So you basically are subsidizing public school for middle classes that come from better schools, uh, and you have many uh, large segments of poor populations paying for low-quality tertiary education. And there has been a massive expansion of low-quality tertiary education for which the poor pay, uh, whereas the elite public institutions uh, are now uh, filled uh, with, with people that come from private schools. So certainly the case in Mexico, in the UNAM, Colegio de Mexico, see all these schools that are publicly funded. So the issue is, yes, the middle class mobilizes for, to demand education, but a certain type of education, that is at least our reading of, of those type of movements. So um, for that... Our, our suggestion is to, to break this cycle and, and turn it into a positive cycle. The key variable is the quality of the services. So after a certain threshold of lower quality, these dynamics uh, becomes really uh, you know, uh, bad in, in terms of this opting out, whereas if you manage to increase the quality so that it is the, the middle class has incentives to use these public services, you actually turn around these this dynamics in a positive way. So for us, the key element is this quality of public services to try to change those dynamics. Uh, of, of course, for that, you need also the fiscal capacity to do it, and many institutional capacity to do it. Um, so, well, well, this is what, what, what we mentioned there. So the, the, the key point is, we say, yes, this is the evolution of, of the middle class in Latin America, according to this definition. We look at how this interacts with other elements, with the little information we have. I think the main um, gaps in, in, in the agenda is, is in terms of the political economy of this, what really, can, when we say about what it implies, um, so, for, you know, this growth of the middle class. So what we suggest in Chapter 6 are, is not conclusive at all. What we, all the things that I have just mentioned are really hypotheses that we have to really you know, to look into more, more, more carefully. But the idea is that uh, the key element in terms of policy is how we break this potentially negative cycle and, and, and we turn it into a positive cycle of higher quality and more uh, fiscal capacity. Thank you.